0: Be seated beloved I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter 24 for today's sermon we welcome you all into God's house this morning for worship I'm thankful to be together this is the day the Lord has made we shall rejoice and be glad in it Exodus 24 tells us the confirmation of the Mosaic Covenant that God made with Israel about 3,500 years ago. There are cues and cues toward what our worship should look like today. So we're going to look for those this morning together. With the distinct meaning of God's desired presence with his people. God does desire presence with his people but he must establish his presence with people by overcoming a huge chasm that's man-made between him and us. That is our sin, our open rebellion against his governorship of our lives. Man's rebellion is recorded very near the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. And it serves as to create the problem that culminates in a plot twist in the Bible, how that problem is overcome. Meaning this, God made us, we were separated from God because of our sin, and God set out to redeem us through redemption by His Son. And God's, God's Son came in the fullness of time to bring redemption to us and fellowship for us as His people but conversely, eternal separation remains for not his people. And so, before we go any further into specifics of Exodus 24 and its context today about how God has brought about redemption in history, I wonder if you'd like to receive the good news today. Just right from the start, I wonder if you'd like to receive Christ. The Bible says that to all who receive him, he gives the right to become children. Of God. So like children, I wonder if you would just simply profess faith today, first to yourself before God, and then eventually to others through the waters of baptism. Would you acknowledge faith in Jesus Christ to redeem you from the penalty of your sin and live forevermore with him, whether that is upon your death or his return? Would you become a part of God's people of faith today? Faith is all that is required to receive Christ's righteousness as your own. God credited faith as righteousness to Abraham 4,000 years ago. Faith is described as your victory. And in the time of Moses, just after Israel was delivered from Egyptian slavery, the project toward faith continued. This covenant confirmation ceremony that we're going to read about today, where Israel promises to be people of the book under penalty of perjury, of telling an untruth to God after swearing to tell the truth and nothing but the truth. This chapter, this story, this point in the story demonstrates just how much work God will have to do on our behalf in order to bridge the chasm between Him and us that sin has created and just how intent He is on doing exactly that thing that is bridging the chasm that sin has created between us and Him. Children, I hope you'll hear me this morning. God has made a way for you, too, and it's the same way as it is for every single living, breathing purpose person who understands this purpose for their life here this morning. That is for you to have faith in Him, that what He's done for you makes a way where there was no way. It's from faith first to last. It is not natural; supernatural, and so we need God's help in that, and He promises to give it. We have not because we ask not. And so we need our frailty to be overcome, that we might worship in his presence. God has granted us promises in Scripture as believers. So for everyone in my hearing that has faith, you have promises. You're inheritors of the surety of the promises that will be fulfilled because God has said so. And we want to kind of lean into three promises that are found in today's text in the covenant confirmation ceremony of Exodus 24 in the time of Moses and the giving of the Mosaic covenant. We want to see how worship in God's presence is built on the promise of revelation. And we want to see how worship in God's presence is built on the promise of God's fellowship. And we want to see how worship in God's presence is built on the promise of God's Forgiveness. We'll see that, that is revelation in verses 3 to 8. We will see fellowship in verses 9 to 11. And we will see forgiveness in verses 12 to 18. I wonder if you would listen as I read God's word from Exodus chapter 24, verses 1 through 18. The word of the Lord says this Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come near, come up with him. Verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men, young men of the people of Israel, who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood and threw it against the altar, Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and ate, and drank. Verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone, with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud. And went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. I wonder if you bow your heads with me now and let's pray. <laughs> Father, help us not only to be hearers, but also doers of your word. Help us by understanding your word this Lord's day. Spirit, help us as we've already asked in this service. We ask again, illuminate these words as the Father planned and the Son accomplished, so Spirit, apply. Do this supernatural work in us, eradicate our natural thoughts, move us into heavenly worship. We ask again for your work to be done in and through us now, as we are gathered as your people before you, beholding you as our God, to worship In Christ's name, amen. As we consider these verses today, as God has instructed us to do by giving us this book and instilling in us covenant, we see in verses 3 to 8 that worship in God's presence is built on the promise of revelation. Now, I say the promise of revelation because more revelation was to come than what was given and written at this point 3,500 years ago we will see that worship is built on the promise of revelation that led them to covenant and to offerings and to blood atonement. So consider this in these verses. Worship is built on the promise of revelation. It led them to understand covenant, to appreciate covenant. God revealed himself. Otherwise, we wouldn't know about him in a special way. God revealed himself to his prophet Moses. And Moses told the people all of the words, not part of them, but all of the words of the known revelation of the time. He not only told them one or some words, but he told them all of the words. And he didn't just tell them, but he wrote them, and he wrote them so they could be read publicly and heard in corporate worship. And that's what's happening today. The word is read, and it's heard, and we respond to it. What led them to covenant is God actually revealing himself to them. And in book form, we find. There's a reason that devout Christians are bookish students. That doesn't mean that you have to be literate in order to be a Christian. Not at all. It's just to say that Christians have a history of reading a book and then writing about the book to point us back to the book and studying the book, to traffic in big ideas because God is the biggest idea. There's a reason discipling is a studying kind of ministry. So we can grow, as Peter says, in not just the grace, but also the knowledge, the awareness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we do this by availing ourselves again and again, perennially, to the revelation of God found in this book. That's the reason that Spurgeon famously said that we should visit many great books, but we should live in the book. We should live in the Bible. We do this in Sunday schools, We do this in group studies. We do this certainly in our corporate worship as a means of grace. That's where you are right now, hearing the preached word. We avail ourselves to it in private worship as well as family worship. I wonder this morning, could you be more regular here? What a beautiful gathering, beloved people, this morning. I wonder if thinking through this first sermon point, I wonder if an application for you might be to be more regular here, to avail yourself to the the study of the Word, through the preaching of the Word right here? Could you be more established by establishing a reading schedule personally? I'm going to read through this section of the Bible this season. In the home, or with friends, or as I said, personally. How might this help you? We are people of the book, and that's Clear in our text today. Look at verse 4 of Exodus chapter 24. It says that Moses himself wrote. He wrote down all the words of the Lord. Writing is done with intent for reading. That's the purpose of writing. And so he wrote of the Lord, all of it. And it says here that he was industrious in getting up in the morning and getting about the work, not only we see of what would be written, but how we would worship. This was the book of the covenant that's described in the section of Exodus that we find in chapters 19 to 24. It's headlined with the Ten Commandments, and then that we get into some civil regulations, some laws for Israel. But, by implication, the book of the covenant being written, is showing us about all of the writings that Moses would write, and all the books of Moses that he would write are contained in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Moses was a writer, thus a reader, and of this book of the covenant as it's described, this subset within the book of the books of the books, which that's what the Bible is, it's a book of books. So covenant is a way of understanding the flow of the Bible. Differently, God made a covenant with Adam in the garden, and that covenant was broken. God made covenants with Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, each with glistening continuity as well as discontinuity. So Moses' covenant must be read through the lens of fuller revelation, the New Testament. But the promises of old are fulfilled in Christ, the new Israel, the inscriber of a new covenant, in his very own blood. And so worship is built on the promise of revelation in covenant with offerings and blood atonement baked into the DNA of what it means to worship. It's part of it. So let's think about offerings for a moment. Offerings are as old as Cain, for bad ones and as able for good ones. The people Here, ratified the Mosaic covenant commitments with a a hearty, we do. Klein points out that covenants are an I do, we do relationship with matrimonial feel to it. I do, and we do. So, there are rights and responsibilities in a covenant. We're right to let our minds go toward marriage. Marriage has certain rights and responsibilities. It is commitments, plural, but it's more than a commitment. There are obligations, there are rights and responsibilities. Here in Exodus 24, the young men are tasked with the bloodletting for offerings for these two million strong on the foot of a mountain they dare not touch, Sinai. And offerings were made for peace. They were leaning into peace with their God. Peace with God is what is needed. Shalom, erene, it's what is needed, peace. In every language, in every tribe and tongue, we need peace. And it's not a cheaply bought thing. Think of our offerings. You know, We think of a benchmark of 10% of tithe going back to Genesis, talked about in the Bible. We think of giving God of our first fruits of what he gives to us as a representative part. We think of our offerings as, of ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God as we pursue service and missions for God. So offerings are part of worship as the people of God living in light of the new covenant. Thinking of covenant in the Bible, offerings are a part of it. Think about blood as we're considering how God's made himself known to us and how he relates to us through the new covenant. Think about blood as far back as the Mosaic covenant and what we're seeing intimated through the spattering of blood. In terms of covenant, these bowls were filled with animal blood. If you can make your mind sort of imagine what this would have been like. The blood was thrown against the altars as well as on the people themselves. And verse 8 ends, you might just look at it with me, verse 8 ends like this, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So you start to see the connection between the words of the book of the covenant and thus the, the, the words of Scripture and blood atonement. So this blood was strewn between the altar and the people as if to say, if you break this covenant, you deserve to have to happen to you what happened to this animal. That is bloodletting or, or death. So entering into covenant with God is, is serious. And God initiates covenant with man. God could swear by no one greater than himself. So when he covenants, he promises by himself. And here, the people... Of the Mosaic covenant, say a hearty we do. We will be, the word obedient is even used in the text. We will be obedient to the covenant words. But did they? Were they? And you don't have to go too far in Exodus to figure out they were not obedient. They were not obedient. Nevertheless, we see a forward looking type of worship. A look to the fullness of time where worship is built on revelation. A God who reveals Himself for us so that we will have an opportunity to know Him. And that revelation is, finds its fullness in Christ Himself. But that revelation of Scripture, the book of the covenant more broadly, we find here in the Bible. And covenant is a great way to think and to study about these things. God making himself known, God making himself known through covenant. Samuel Renahan wrote a little work on his kingdom and his covenant, The Mystery of Christ. I read you a short paragraph from his writings on the subject. He said, For those living under a covenant that is designed to remind its people of their sin on a repetitive basis, there would be nothing more soul refreshing than to hear of a new covenant whose fundamental promise is the forgiveness of iniquity and the casting of sin into oblivion. God is going to make a new covenant that isn't like the old one. God is going to make a new covenant that forgives sins, a covenant that places the law inside of you as your guide, not outside of you as your taskmaster. After all of the sin from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses to David, at last this covenant will forgive sins. The messianic hope of the old covenant then is nothing other than the new covenant hope of the old covenant. When that future perfect Messiah comes, he will bring a new covenant with him, And all the people of the Lord will know him. Now, I jumped the root on the third point as far as forgiveness, but it's worth saying now to understand the relationship of the covenants as much as we can in a short time. He has one other quote worth sharing at this point. I'll share it now. He writes The church is the kingdom of the new creation circumscribed by regeneration, or God changing us inside. The sacraments of the covenant of grace show the same things to the eyes that the word of the gospel gives to the ears. Sacraments are words in a visible mode. In the covenant of works, the trees made promises of life and death visible. In the Noahic covenant, the covenant with Noah the rainbow makes the promise of preservation visible. In the Abrahamic covenant, circumcision makes the promise of Canaan and the threat of punishment visible. And now where we are in the Mosaic covenant, the Passover and sacrifices made the promises of God visible. In the new covenant, baptism and the Lord's Supper make the promises of God visible visible. Sacraments are not just God's word to His people, but His people, people's participation in the very promises He's given. And so we move now from our first point about God's promise of revelation to His promise of participation, or the word that I used from the onset is fellowship. God makes a promise that He will fellowship with His people. Worship is built on the promise of God's fellowship. This fellowship was here in Exodus 24 to be had by 74 people only, where they see God more clearly and have a covenant meal beholding their God. Let's consider this fellowship more fully from our text today. Remember, fellowship was broken with God in the Garden of Eden, and our first parents were cast out east of Eden for their rebellion against God. And we've been rebelling ever since. It's not just that Adam and Eve sinned, it's that we sin too. We're born as sinners, and we live as sinners. God's revelation in His Word reveals a plan to to redeem people for Himself, thus reestablishing fellowship with man. That's His plan. And that restored fellowship is envisioned in the language of the tabernacle passages, which come in the remainder of Exodus in the weeks ahead, Lord willing, from the sermons from Exodus. So restored fellowship finds its final fulfillment in Christ of the new covenant where he himself comes to dwell or to tabernacle with man. That's Exodus 25 to 27 for next Sunday if God allows it looking at the way the tabernacle was to be constructed. This fellowship we look at in this covenant ratification ceremony of Exodus 24 this this worship this fellowship was only to be had by 74 people. Look at verse 9 of Exodus 24, verse 9. It says, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, that's four, and then 70 elders, that's 70. I'm not great at math, but put them together, that's 74. They went up and they saw the God of Israel. Now just, just pause there and keep your keep your thoughts and minds there for a moment. This fellowship was with just 74 people. And we know that we can look forward and know that in Christ, all God's people have table fellowship, but just let your mind stay Back at this point in salvation history, and see that fellowship for these 74 was showing something about the severity and the gravity of coming nearer to God, pointing toward what would be the Holy of Holies. Fellowship is based on seeing God more clearly, seeing God more clearly. It's, if you look at verse 10, as I said, for you to hold it there of Exodus 24, they saw, they saw the God of Israel. This was under his feet, as it were, a pavement, of sapphire sown, like the very heaven for clearness. This idea of clearness is repeated in Scripture again, and then finally in Revelation. And so there's a sort of a peering into heaven from the bottom up. It's not a full seeing of God. They would have been struck dead. They couldn't have handled such a thing. But it's a seeing of, of, of God in terms of more plainness than the others had. There are levels to these things. And I think that it's, it's clear that what we want to do as believers is we want to see more of God. We want to know Him more. We want to, um, to know Him and, and to grow in His grace as well as knowledge of Him. That's what we're here for, or at least it's what we need to be reminded that we, we are here for or we should want to be here for. That's the purpose of this gathering. There is no other purpose. We're here to behold your God. That's it. Now, there's other things that come with that, but the primary purpose, the reason for all this energy being expended on the Lord's Day, the, the reason for this is to behold your God. And that's the language that is used in verse 11. If you look at verse 11, it says, he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. More on that in a minute. It says, they beheld God, beholding God. So fellowship is based on seeing God more clearly. And I know of no modern writings in English or semi-modern that help me see more clearly than the writings of the the English and American Puritans. Because their writings, if you'll indulge me for a moment, they point me back to, to Scripture and show me the depth of the meaning of Scripture. They help me meditate on words of the book more faithfully. You can find the writings of the Puritans, the thing about it is they're not trying to sell books, they've passed away. They've met the Lord, so you can find many of them free in PDFs online. Charles Spurgeon is thought to be the last of the Puritans by some, of course, dated earlier by many. But Richard Sibbs is a good place to begin with his book, simply titled The Bruised Read, based on a very clear passage in Scripture. There are so many, so accessible resources, so helpful for those that want to see God more clearly. In the time of Moses, these 74 only, these 74 go up further and see God partly, never fully. And God uses human language to help us grasp him. It's not as if God has parts. It's helping us to understand how God wants to make himself known to us, even though he's much different than us. And the pavement of heaven is clear, so they peer in under and they see more plainly, though not totally. They see their God and thus pointing to the presence as a goal of God covenanting with his people. So the presence is a goal of God's covenanting with His people. The fellowship is a goal. They beheld their God. That's the point of exhorting you to study Scripture more intentionally and consistently in this season of your life. It's to to learn to look to the face of Jesus who started and finished your faith according to the book of Hebrews. He's the author and the finisher of your faith. It's to look heavenly with your gaze. It's to long for something more. It's to find your fellowship in Christ and with Christians, with his people. It's to grow to see God's glory as your purpose and God as the center of everything. Thus behold your God. And fellowship is accompanied very often by a meal. Here it says at the end of verse 11 that they, quote, ate and drank, end quote. You see that in verse 11? God didn't strike them dead. They beheld God, and they ate and drank. I think it's right to see this as a foreshadowing. We think it's right. You think it's right, I believe. By looking at this, I think you'll agree. See this as a foreshadowing of the Lord's Supper, which in and of itself is a foreshadowing of the marriage feast of the Lamb. You see, after Christ returns, God's people will share in this massive heavenly inaugural meal. And as I led in this sermon, it's time to ask the question, a different way. I led in the sermon with, would you have faith? Would you be in and among the people of God? But, but now I ask, it, I ask it differently. Will you be invited? Would you be invited to the marriage feast of a Lamb where eating and drinking takes place in the very presence of God? And I tell you this morning that you can be invited. Wedding garments of righteousness are required on the authority of Revelation 19. The church must be arrayed by Christ, and that's all by faith. You must receive. You must have faith. You receive the gospel by faith. We're looking back in Moses' time, and we start to see in this text of Exodus 24, obviously a millennia and a half before Christ came, We start to see worship is built on the promise of God's, not only his revelation of himself, but his fellowship with us. He intends to fellowship with us. He's going to bridge the chasm between us. He's going to make a way where it seems it's impossible to make a way between us and him. We need to be reminded at this point, at the end of our second stanza in the sermon, of verses 1 and 2. I wonder if you'd look at Exodus 24, 1 and 2, before we dive into our our third point today. We've talked about revelation and fellowship. We're going to talk about forgiveness. But look at verses 1 and 2. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, So 74, and worship from afar. Again, the theme of worship, of beholding your God, of, of life in his presence, worshiping God, and of God's intention to restore that fellowship by making himself known to fallen people who have fallen in every sense of the word from his Presence, And then it says in verse 2, Moses alone shall come up to the Lord. So there's even another level of coming up, but the other shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. And so now then we look in light of that, on down to verse, verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. And so he does He goes up, and he receives this this holy writ. Well, God's into writing, too. We see then in verse 13, and it's for our instruction, by the way. It's for our teaching. The Word of God is for our our catechesis. It's for our learning. It's for our knowledge. Verse 13. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain, into the mountain of God, further in, further up. And he said to the elders, it's interesting here in verse 14, wait for us here until we return to you. And he says something about if there's a dispute, these folks will handle it. Obviously, they didn't handle them very well, but that was the intent. And Moses goes on up the mountain. But I want you to notice here this this emphasis on, on waiting. It's it's an emphasis on on waiting. Actually, before I even say anything about waiting, let me say something else about that. I, I kind of went right past it, but I probably shouldn't. I mean, Aaron, <laughs> they don't do a very good job at all at this dispute resolution. They're not handling Jethro's counsel very well at all. And, and we see this going forward. I mean... You know what happens with the golden calf, and Aaron presides over it. and It's a mess. I mean, while Moses is, is receiving words from God, the people are already violating the terms of the covenant. They're living in open rebellion. And Moses will intercede. He'll be an intermediary for them, although imperfectly he will mediate for them. We'll find that as we go through the book of Exodus, and Moses the mediator but what I want you to see here is that these people are in desperate need of renewal. Aaron and Hur don't do a very good job. You see these other listed names, these proper downs, Nadab and Abihu. If you go further in Levit- in, the, in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible, you get to Leviticus, I believe it's the 10th chapter. Nadab and Abihu are struck For their impropriety with regard to worship. These people have seen and beheld wonderful things. And yet, they reach a point of flippancy with worship. My, my, what a statement of how serious we are to be about the worship of God. Worship of God is not silly. Worship of God is not optional. Worship of God is full, weighty; it matters, and we are again and again reminded by reading verses like this of how, in this time, there were a, there was a mixed multitude, some of which got it some of which did not. In the new covenant, what we are pursuing here is a a membership in the local church, if you will, where everyone has a credible profession of faith in Christ and lives basically a lifestyle in keeping with our church covenant that we are who we say we are in light of the watching world. There's a a newness to the new covenant that, that causes us to have A different level of expectation here where we have been regenerated by the Spirit and God in us is guiding us to newer and newer heights in worship and in ethical behaviors. And so there is a newness to the new covenant that we should cite and recite here. If we're looking at Exodus 24, we should consider how worship is built on the promise of God's forgiveness, a promise that is clearly extant for us today. It's right here for us today forgiveness through an intermediary who would wait for a time, verses 16 and 18, through the experience of the glory of God and bring people into merciful forgiveness of God. This is all pointing to something. So worship is built on the promise of forgiveness. Otherwise, look at verse 11. Those people would have just been struck dead on the merits of their behaviors. They'd have just been struck dead. The chief men of the people, God didn't lay his hand on them. There has to be some rationale behind this. For God is holy and we are not. He's described that way as holy. Sinful man deserves to die. Sin, when it's full grown, it ends in death. Forgiveness comes through an intermediary. And Moses is foreshadowing a more ultimate mediator. But Moses is the mediator of this Mosaic covenant. And I'm struck by his patience. I'm struck by how he waited. We don't wait well by nature now, do we? We are by nature impatient people. It's a, a supernatural fruit of the Spirit to practice spiritual self-control. I mean, you may be able to practice self-control for the purpose of some other endeavor, but if it's motivated by the Spirit, then a fruit of the Spirit is self-control and of patience, along with love and joy and peace and other pursuits, but patience. And you see that, that God in us begins to, to point us toward waiting well. And you see there's waiting mentioned there in chapter 12, but there's waiting mentioned in verse 12 rather, but there's waiting mentioned with regard to the Sabbath concept. And in verse 16, it says, On the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. So there were days of waiting there. And if you look at verse 18, Moses is on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights, summarizing the time that was spent here on the mountain during the giving of the instructions for the tabernacle in chapters 25 to thirty. One, And so here we have this, this, this waiting and this waiting well, because we know that good things come to those who wait. I mean, we find ourselves in a waiting pattern here in this life, right? I mean, we, we've already received salvation from the Lord. It's a sure and certain promise we'll spend eternity with our Lord. But like the Apostle Paul, we say that it, it, it might be better for you that we're still here, but I long to be with Christ, to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. There's this, this the Apostle Paul in spiritual maturity would, would talk as, as, of, of these things in this way, and I'm, I'm loosely quoting, but he would say, I'd rather be with Christ, but it's better right now that I'm with you. So there's purpose to this life. We're not to, to end this life prematurely. There's purpose to this life. The purpose is bringing glory to God, though. It's not simply seeking to become more and more and more comfortable in this abode. This redemptive mission Of God is shown to us to a degree in the reading of Exodus 24, because what sin deserves is death, but God shows us a way to forgiveness. And Moses, sensing these greater realities, waits well, at least well enough here, sins later. And this Moses mediator experiences heavier doses of God's presence as he goes highest up the mountain. We see it in verses 16 and 17 afresh. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, verse 16, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called out to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. So they... they could see it. See, the mediator sees the glory of the Lord in the cloud and all the people see this sight from the foot at a distance below Mount Sinai. This devouring fire is on top of the mountain. They can see it. The appearance is is of and it's about the very glory of God. Isaiah's description of God is, as we sang, holy, holy, holy. An intensification of holiness. Holy, holy, holy which is a manifestation of what? Of God's glory. The purpose of man is to bring glory to God. And God's glory is both fixed and it's fanned into flame. On Albert Muller's The Briefing this past week, he discussed God's glory. And I'll quote him here. He said, God, by being God, exalts in His own glory. This is not narcissistic. God is infinite. So you ask, what is the glory of God? Answer. It's the internal reality and external manifestation of the greatness of God in all of his perfections, all of his infinite perfections. God's glory is the reality and making visible of the Godness of God. Internal reality is never more glorious, for God is self existent. External manifestation, we're not adding on to God. But we are adding on to His external manifestation of His glory. We, When we bring worship to God, we bring tribute to God. Seeking external manifestation is why we worship. It's why we praise. It's why we sing the Word and hear the Word. It's why we pray the Word. That's why we do it. It is beyond our power to add to the reality of God's glory. It is there. But it is in our power to add to the visibility of of and the perception of His glory. I wonder if you'll think about that with me. We add to the visibility of God's glory. That's the local church for you. We add to the visibility of God's glory. We gather to behold our God, and in doing so, in all aspects of covenant worship, we add to the visibility of the glory of God. And in this way, our very corporate worship is missions. We're being watched. And in this text, a mediator brings people into understanding of, or the ultimate mediator actually, into merciful forgiveness of God. That's what verse 17, the second half of it, is about, seeing this glory manifest on top of a mountain. But it's not a glory that you can see and, and, and not actually benefit from. It is a glory of God that He wants to bring benefit to you by. It's as if this is what God is like. They're looking up, this is what God is like. He's consuming, He's devouring, He's all-encompassing. He's not to be approached tritely or lightly. There's this gravity, as we said, this weight of glory. And the mediator grasps this. Moses, he understands this as much as he can, and he seeks to intercede on behalf of the people. Moses does this later in Exodus. We'll see it in chapter 33. He does it imperfectly. He doesn't enter the land, but he does seek to intercede. But Jesus is the true and better prophet and priest. He mediates the new covenant in his blood, offering himself as sacrifice. He is behind this book. He's undergirding this book. This book is about him. He is fellowshipping now with his saints. Right now, he's fellowshipping with you. And he is pardoning sins, not temporarily, but forevermore. Hebrews nine twenty two says, "There's no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Whose blood? Christ's. Not some animal, and not me or you, like we deserve, but Christ. That's why Hebrews says in chapter seven verse twenty five. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Think about that. Consequently." Because of the shedding of His blood. When He came in the fullness of time and willing went to the cross, He is able to do what? To save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. Not 74 people that draw near in a Mosaic covenant, but 100% of the people that draw near to God through Christ. Why? Because He always lives to make intercession for you. Always and forever. And you say, how can always and forever anybody make intercession? Behold your God. Behold your God. That's how. He's not like you. And you don't want him to be like you. You need a God. Hebrews 12 recounts in light of Christ's first coming. Moses' mediatory work, ascending Mount Sinai and the seriousness of it and how it points to the need and the promise of a new and better covenant with a new and better mediator. And so I want you to hear afresh the dense words of the next to last chapter of Hebrews. Chapter 12, verses 18 to 29, we'll close here. Let hear these words. Let Exodus 24 pop in your mind and let the glory of God and his promises for you, church, ring and encourage you today, beloved. Here's what it says. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire in darkness and gloom, and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoke to them, for they could not endure the order that was given If even a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned. Indeed so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, Quote, I tremble with fear, end quote. But you have come to Mount Zion, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will they escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore... Therefore, let us, people of God, experiencing the newness of a new covenant, therefore let us, let us be not sour, let us be grateful. Why? For receiving a kingdom that's unshakable, cannot be shaken. And therefore, let us offer to God worship that is acceptable. What kind of worship is that? It's awe-filled and reverent worship every Lord's Day. Why? Because the same God that was described as a consuming fire on Mount Sinai 3,500 years ago is a consuming fire today. This is your God. And you get to worship him. He's made himself known to you. He's bought fellowship with you. He's forgiven your sins. And you get to worship him. And he is good. Let us pray. God, we're going to be silent before you for just a little bit. And we're going to ask some things of you.